0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's take our Bibles now, if you would, and we open our to the Scriptures in Galatians chapter 3. And this evening we are continuing with our explanation of the purpose of God's law. And we will conclude uh, that part of the study tonight. And then in the next lesson we'll begin with verse number 23. But tonight we're looking at verses 15 through 22. And we are in a critical part of the book. This section is really one of the most important that we find in Scripture because it explains the difference between two types of religion. And you may say, well, why are we so worried about two different types of religions when there are actually hundreds of religions that are in the world? Well, we've learned that you can take all of the religions of the world and distill them into uh, one particular doctrine with two different approaches to that doctrine. That either we are right with God, made right with God uh, by God's initiative... By the grace of God, or else we're made right by God by our own initiative. In other words, our salvation is by works. And that is the sum total of the two positions of salvation that is found in the world. So you have one of two religions. You either have the religion of Jehovah God, or you have the religion of the pretender to the throne, which is the religion of Satan. Well, in this particular passage of Scripture, those two positions are depicted by the hearing of faith, which is represented by Abraham, or the works of the law, which is represented by Moses. Now, instead of reading all of these Scriptures tonight, I want to take up where we left off last time. So if you look at verse number 19, we'll start there and then read to verse number 22. Paul says, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. I want to stop there for just a moment because in the message tonight, I hadn't prepared to really talk about this particular part. And, and I, don't, I don't think that I've, I've gone back and picked it up. But where Paul says, Wherefore then serveth the law, it was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. I hope you'll remember that when we talked about the seed at a previous time, that that seed refers to Jesus Christ. And all the promises that are made in the word of God all of these positive promises uh, that are made to the people of God and all these things that God has, has promised to do are actually made to Jesus himself that the, that the promises all rest in him and so if God is going to make a promise that he's made to us he would have to at the same time break a promise that he made to Jesus Christ and that simply is not going to happen now verse number 20 says now a mediator is not a mediator of one but God is one Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Now the issue that's before us in this part of scripture is where do we find a place for the law in God's plan of salvation? Now, even though we are saved by grace and saved without the works of the law, we do know that God gave the law and that it played an integral part of the relationship that God has with man. So in what place do we put God's law? Well, the Galatians were faced with that problem because they had been influenced by Jews that wanted to change the intended purpose of the law. And they said that the means of being justified was by God's law. And Paul disputed that. He said that faith justifies and that our justification is is uh, secured by the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness to us. So it's not things that we do. It's not our righteousness, but it is the righteousness of Christ that we receive by faith. And if obedience to the law then does not secure our righteousness, then why did God give the law? And then that, that's really the, the crux of the matter, as we're dealing with this section, and that's what Paul answers. Now, I've pointed out before that it was the opinion of the Judaizers that Paul was very much adverse to the law. They thought that what Paul wanted to do was just totally disregard it, to toss it out on its ear, and say the law is not important at all. When he was in Jerusalem at a later time, uh, this controversy was swirling, and there were some Jews that saw Paul go into the temple. And they said, there goes that guy that teaches people everywhere against the laws of Moses. Well, that was a false charge against him because Paul was not against the Mosaic law. In fact, he was very much for it. Paul said that the law was holy and he said the commandment is holy. He said it's just and it's good. But what Paul did not want to do was to pit the law against the promise that had been made by God that we could be justified by faith. So we take up our outline once again with point number three this evening, which is the law accentuates the need of the promise. The law is not against the promise of God. It never was intended to oppose it, but instead what the law does is to exalt the promise that God made, the justification would come through faith. Now that promise of Of justification by faith is represented by the promise that God made to Abraham before the Mosaic law was ever given. And then when uh, Moses came along and God gave him the law on Mount Sinai, that law was not intended to supersede what had already been given to Abraham as that original promise. Now, it was intended, though, to show that there is no hope in self. There's no way that any person could help himself. And so what he must do is to throw himself on the mercy of God and let God's grace lead him to salvation. Well, last week I gave you two ways in which the law accentuates the promise, and I want to repeat those very briefly. Then we're going to look at the third way that the law exalts faith as the only means of being right with God. Now, first, we learned uh, from this passage that the law establishes transgression. This is what Paul said in verse 19. He says the law was added because of transgression. And I gave you a lengthy explanation of that previously, so let it suffice to say now that the law was given to show that sin is rebellion against against God. Now, there never was a question that people are sinners. People have been sinners all the way back since the time of Adam. But what man did not know without the law of God was that the law or that his sin was actually against God. Now, he may have understood that he was sinning against other people. He may have understood that he transgressed even his own, his, his self or society, as I said last week. But what he did not know is that these uh, laws that he broke were the laws of the most holy God. And really, that is the, the reason why that people pass our building every week and they never give a second thought about coming into church. They may realize that they're sinners, but what they don't know is that they have broken God's law and that they stand accountable for that. And they, in God's courtroom, they're going to be judged for it. So the law was given to show us that what we do wrong is not just against other people and not just against self, but we are actually breaking the laws of God. And so we see very clearly through the law that sin is a violation of God's commandments, that the Ten Commandments are the codification of the law that's already been written on our heart. It's already there. And what God did was to write it down with his own finger, and he incorporated those laws that are written on our heart into the written law. Now, secondly, we learned that the law establishes inability, that it shows the impossibility of perfect obedience. And if we really understand it correctly, we can see that there's not even one law that we've actually kept, So it's not a matter of can we keep ten commandments or can we keep eight commandments or seven or even five or even two. We haven't actually kept any of God's commandments in the way that he wants them to be kept. And the reason is we can never keep a commandment to God's standard. So not only do our actions have to be perfectly right, but every motive behind those actions, every thought that we have has to be perfectly right as well. And it is impossible For a person who has been infected with sin not to see that every action that he makes, every action that he takes, bears the germs of that infection. Now, the Bible teaches that we are totally depraved, that every part of us has been infected by sin, and that total depravity feeds into our total inability. Now, to give an example of that, I think uh, we think about the, the fear that was part of everyone's life because of the AIDS virus? I mean, is there anybody here that would want to take a transfusion from an AIDS patient? I mean, would you even want to take one, uh, one small prick, uh, get the blood from any part of a person who has AIDS? Would you, would you want to take that chance of getting a transfusion if you even knew there was just even a small chance that that person in some part of their body has the AIDS virus? Well, you wouldn't do that, and when, and I don't mean to be be um, um, be harsh about this, but the blood banks when you when you uh, give blood, I mean, they very carefully screen all of the all of the blood that they take to make sure that it's not infected with that virus. Well, in the same way, we could never be justified by the law because what the law has done is to screen us from top to bottom and find that we are thoroughly infected with sin. The Bible says there is none righteous no not one and this is why Isaiah said from the from the from the top of our head to the soles of our feet there's nothing in us but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores so we are just unable to save ourselves because we can never keep God's law to his satisfaction we have to be perfect as God is perfect and none of us can do that so the law then becomes the mirror that, that shines imperfection, our imperfections back into our faces. So when we look into the perfect law of God, the image that is reflected back is the imperfect image that's been tainted by sin. So those are two ways that the law accentuates the need of the promise. So we must be justified in some other way than the law because the law just shows the seriousness of our transgression and shows the inability to reach God's standard of perfection. Now there's a third way then that the law accentuates the promise and that is the law establishes condemnation. Well this part is actually a no-brainer because if we're guilty of breaking the law then we know we must be also guilty of the penalties of the law. And if you know the law, if you've read it, if you've read the the Bible and see what the law contains, you find that there are many curses that go along with it, so that when a person breaks the law, he comes under the condemnation of the law, and that law becomes the very thing that shackles him and binds him with no possibility to escape. So rather than the law being a means to free ourselves from condemnation, which is what would have to be to commend us to God, the law serves only to condemn us further, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7 that he was uh, condemned. He understood that he was already condemned without the knowledge of the law. And then when he received knowledge of the law, that that thing that he thought was going to be so good for him to find out more about, he actually found to be further condemnation to him. All it did was just dig the hole of condemnation even deeper, so deep he couldn't dig himself out. Now, notice the interesting language that we have in verse 22. It says, But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. The Scripture has concluded all under sin. Now, that that word concluded, that's maybe not what you think it is. The word concluded here means to lock up together translated from the greek it means to shut in on all sides and so the idea that's conveyed here is that the law is a prison house that all men are locked in the prison house of sin and the law is put there to stand guard over us so that the law is always watchful over us so that no one escapes the prison now Paul has another way of stating that when we get to the next part of this that we'll deal with, which is, to me, extremely interesting as he talks about the schoolmaster. And we'll get into that uh, in a few weeks. But we see, we, see, so we see that further in verse number 23 and going on, that, that, that the law is actually shackles us, it binds us. He says, but before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. So the law is always guarding us, So there is no hope of escape. That thought is expressed in the hymn, And Can It Be? When Charles Wesley wrote these words, he said, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. And Wesley went on to talk about how he was chained in sin. And the law of God is that chain. The law is the chain that binds us And it's the judgment of the law that draws tighter around us every time we try to free ourselves from it. Now, it's interesting to me that whenever a person entertains the thought that he could be righteous by his own works, he is right then in an act of sinfulness. And I say that because he's rejected God's word. The word says that we can only be righteous by faith and only the promise of God can save. So any time that you would ever entertain righteousness by human merits, you have just pulled that chain of the law even tighter around you. And when you look at it that way, it puts the methodology uh, of the theology of work salvation in just a totally different light because you take someone like the Roman Catholic who, who goes into a confessional booth and seeks absolution from a priest When he does that, he's just heaped a more unbearable burden of condemnation upon him because he's refused the truth of the word of God. So rather than being freed from the punishment of sin by trying to do that, he's just added another one on top of it. And it just makes it even that more hopeless that he could ever get out from under it. So the law serves to condemn him further. So what you'd never want to do is to put the law on par with faith for justification because every time that you try to elevate the law, the scripture teaches that you denigrate the work of Jesus Christ. The higher the law goes in your estimation, the deeper or repressed, more depressed maybe I should say, the the work of Christ on the cross becomes. And that's what the scripture calls trampling under your feet the blood of Jesus Christ. So the law does not exalt Uh, itself for salvation but it drives a helpless sinner to the only place he can go to be helped B.H. Carroll wrote the law was added for wrath to reveal the penalty of sin the law was added to gender bondage and death to make a man see that he is a slave and doomed to death and so it's foolish to seek righteousness by the law because when you try you just keep drawing the noose tighter around your neck so the only thing the law can do is hold up a dead corpse by the noose, by a noose and hang him there. Now let me just take this and, and, and spin it around for just a moment, just in case you've, you and all this time you've kind of got lost in this explanation. Now, I think most of you get this, but there may be somebody who's just stuck on the meaning that I'm trying to get across, so let me just bring this back down to the most basic level of what Paul's speaking here. He's saying that the Judaizers tried to slip in circumcision as a means of salvation. To be saved, they said you must be circumcised. Well, I'm not talking to Judaizers tonight. I don't think anybody in here is a Judaizer. I mean, not in the sense that the New Testament speaks of them. And I'm not talking about circumcision. I'm not going to get up here and preach that everybody has to be circumcised. But in the place of circumcision, we can put anything that a church says that you must do in order to be saved. So if they say baptism is a part of salvation, then they've made human work a means of justification. If they say that it's possible to be forgiven by a priest, by saying a rosary, or by being confirmed, or by taking the Mass, those are all examples of replacing the grace of God with the works of the law. And really, when we talk about those things, such as the Mass and things like that, that's not even a part of the law anyway. That's man's invention as a law, and that's even worse So even if you go out on your own, and, and you're not concerned about those kinds of things, and you say, well, you know, I think what I'll do today is I'll go down and help at the homeless shelter. Well, that's a good thing to do, but if you think that you're doing that in order to gender the good graces of God, then you've just fallen into the world's religion of justification by faith. So you think of anything that there is to do, no matter what it is, if you try to curry favor with God by some activity, then you have Satan's religion and not God's. Because God's religion says you can't do anything because anything that you do is not good enough. And so what it's doing is pointing us to Jesus Christ as the only one who is good enough. His righteousness is the only righteousness that God accepts. And that's because it is perfect in thought, in deed. All of it is perfect. So, to be saved, a person has to give up on everything that he is in, in himself and throw everything upon the righteous work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So the law was given to make you realize that critical point, you cannot help yourself because you are a sinner. You have egregiously broken God's law. And the only one who can do anything about that is God himself. And God did do something about it. He sacrificed his own son for your sins. And the benefits of what Christ did on the cross are appropriated to us in only one way, and that is by faith in him. Now, let me go a little bit further here tonight, and and I want to take some time to wrap up some of the loose ends that we have in in these verses. And I think the fourth point will help us. The law accomplishes less than the promise. The law accomplishes less than the promise. The law is inferior to faith as a means of justification because it accomplishes less than the promise. Now, the title of the message is The Purpose of the Law, and the different purposes that have been assigned to faith and law show us that one is inferior to the other. Now, the purpose of God's promise is to bring salvation, and the purpose of God's law is to drive us to salvation. So, we can say that the purpose of the law is inferior. The law is inferior. The law can never save you, and as far as God's dealings with man... Salvation is the highest expression of his purpose. Salvation brings glory to God. And since God's glory is the primary objective, the objective must be greater than the means to reach that objective. So when God gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the promise first because as he dealt with Abraham, he had a view of bringing him to salvation and also to bring the entire world to salvation. And Abraham, the Bible says, all the families of the world would be blessed. And that's because the promised seed of Jesus Christ would come through Abraham. But the law could never reach that objective. It couldn't accomplish what the promise accomplished. All it could do was to do the lesser, and that's to point out how desperately in need we are of that promise. Finding out that you're needy, that's a very important thing, isn't it? I mean, you must know this, you you must know that you can't do anything to help yourself, that you need to give up on yourself, that's very important. But having the knowledge that you have a need is not going to fill the need. Just like when you get hungry, Your, your stomach can send out some really strong signals that you're hungry and all the hunger pangs and all of that, but your stomach cannot fill itself, it can't do anything about the problem. Your brain may have the Pavlovian response when you pass the golden arches and you begin to salivate, but your brain can't fill your stomach. And this is like the law. It has a purpose, but it's no way superior to the purpose of the promise because it cannot do what the promise was designed to do. Now, secondly, the mediation of the law is inferior. Now, let's go back to verse number 19. Wherefore then serveth the law... It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to who the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. When God gave the law, it passed through the hands of two mediators first before it ever got to the people. First of all, God gave it to the angels. Now, I admit that's a hard thing to understand because you can study what happened in the Old Testament on Mount Sinai and read all about the giving of the law, and you'll never find a verse in the Old Testament that says that God first gave the law to the angels. The, law doesn't, the, God, the Bible doesn't say anything about angels receiving the law. But we do find a reference to it in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 2 And so the Jews may have kept that as an oral tradition because they thought that the angels were the one that arranged everything and put it in order for for Moses, that God gave it to them, they arranged it, and they gave it to Moses. So they received the law first and then handed it off to Moses. This is what we read in Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense and reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? And so there you see angels connected to the transgression and disobedience of the law. Well, the Apostle Paul seems to confirm that tradition when he says in Galatians that the law was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. And the word ordained can have the meaning of to set in order. So it seems that God gave the angels the law and they arranged it and handed it off to Moses. Now, the angels, of course, are not the author of the law, but they are a what we call a middleman to get the law to Moses. Well, that's one mediator that the law went through before it gets to the people who's the other mediator well that mediator would be moses he's the second mediator so the law goes from the hand of god to the angels and then to moses and then moses gave it to the people so before the people ever got what god wanted to say to them he went through two mediators to get it there but what about the promise made to abraham Well, we look at verse number 20. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. On a couple of occasions, I've mentioned that as far as I know, this verse has more interpretations than any other verse in the Bible. Some have identified as many as 450 different interpretations of verse number 20. Now, I don't know how many of those you want to hear tonight. Maybe I could give you 200 or so. But that would probably take a little while. So I'm not going to give you 200. I'm going to give you just two. I'm going to give you the wrong one, one of the wrong ones. And then I think I'm going to give you the right one. So someone would come along and they would read this and they'd say, Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. And they would say, Well, what we have here is a denial of the Trinity. That when we speak of the triune God, we say that God is three persons in one. But somebody comes along and says, That ain't right. This verse says that God is one. He's not a trinity. And that person must be a hillbilly because he said that ain't right. And that, that, that ain't right either. So he says this, this, this says that God is one. Well, this is not talking about the person of God. Obviously, it has something to do with the idea of mediation that we find in the text. Now, the right interpretation may actually be multifaceted. There may be more than one way to take this and be right about it. So, the first facet that we could look at is that it directly ties to the earlier statement about the number of mediators in the Mosaic Law. That the law went through two mediators, the angels and Moses, but when God spoke to Abraham, there was no mediator. God spoke directly to Abraham. So, God and Abraham came face to face. And wouldn't you say that a direct meeting with God is better than an indirect one? Would you rather meet with the president or with the president's ambassador? Well, obviously, a direct meeting with God is superior than an indirect one, and this is what God did. He, he came directly to Abraham. What he had to say was so momentous that he went straight to Abraham to say what he wanted to say. Then there's also the thought that you need a mediator to bring two parties together. What a mediator does is he relays the terms of a covenant in a way that both parties have responsibility and obligation to that covenant. Sometimes you'll hear about arbitration meetings. And in those kinds of meetings, you have two sides that are at variance. And the mediator sits in on the negotiations. And then when everything is settled, he announces that one side is given a little. The other side is given a little. So now we have an agreement. But in the case of God's law, he said, or in this case, he said, this is what I'm going to do if you do this. And this is what I'm going to do if you don't do this. And that's not exactly arbitration, but there is a mediator there that says, here are the terms and conditions of the law. This is what you do to get blessed. This is what happens. This is what would happen if you don't keep the law, you will be cursed. Well, as we know, Israel didn't really like the terms of that covenant because right there in in the same time that the covenant's being given, they're murmuring against Moses and they want to go back to Egypt. But the covenant with Abraham wasn't like that. There was no mediator. This is God talking to Abraham, and he says, This is what I will do. And Abraham did not say, Okay, well, this is what I will do. No, nobody sat in on this and brought the parties to agreement. There is no mediator. And this is what Paul says here. There's no such thing as a mediator of one. If one side makes all the decisions, you don't need a mediator. So, this is all of God and none of Abraham. So, you see that? God doesn't have a mediator with the promise because there aren't any terms and conditions. God just says, Here it is, this is what I'll do. And Abraham came with nothing in his hand, he just believed that God would do it. And then we can look at another facet of meaning that Paul is arguing for one method of salvation, that there's only one way for Jews and Gentiles to be saved. Jews aren't saved one way and Gentiles another. So the promise made to Abraham stands good for one way of salvation, which is always by grace through faith for all time. Now you do have those that we call hyper-dispensationalists, And they believe that the Old Testament was a time of law and that people were saved in the Old Testament by the law. But if that's true, then the argument that Paul makes here counts for nothing. It doesn't even make sense. And then they also say that in the millennium, that salvation will be by the law again. And that's why there's the reinstitution of sacrifices. But sacrifices never saved anybody anyway. So that's nonsense too And so the argument stands good here That God is one He is the God of one way of salvation Ephesians says There is one body and one spirit Even as ye are called in one hope of your calling One Lord, one faith, one baptism One God and Father of all Who is above all and through all And in you all So that verse is telling us There isn't 40 ways of salvation There aren't many paths to God There's only one And that's faith in Jesus Christ. So the law is inferior because the people received it third hand from God, but the promise was received first hand from God. And that's interesting because it appears that the law was never God's highest means of dealing with man. You see, God stood distant from man when he appeared on Mount Sinai. He only let a shadow of his glory pass before Moses, and there was no touching. There was no intimacy with God. The law was given, and the people were told to stay away. If you read there in Exodus 19, you'll find that the people were afraid to approach the mountain. They weren't going to get close to it because they knew that they were going to die. So they said, Moses, you you go see God. You go first. You do, first, you do it first. You go see God. We'll stay here behind because they knew if they got close to that mountain, they would be killed. Now, that's not very personal, is it? Personal? Uh, there's no cuddling there. There's no, there is no uh, pampering by any stretch of the imagination. But you know what God says with the promise? In the promise, he says, come near to me. Give me your heart. Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. There's closeness in it. There's intimacy in it. The promise even says that we can come to God and we can call him Daddy. But the law says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The promise says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if you look in our text, it, uh, down below our text in Galatians 4, verse 6, it says, And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba is a term of endearment. It's like saying, Daddy. Now, I, there are some people, I, I've even talked to people here in our church and I've talked to visitors before of when, I've been pre- when I've preached on the fatherhood of God and talk about the relationship that we have with God as our father, that they've come to me and said, I can't really relate to that. I can't relate to God as a father. And that's because their human fathers were not what they were supposed to be. They may have abused them, all kinds of things. And so trying to relate to God as a father doesn't work for them. And so it's better to come back to a passage like this and put into their minds the idea of a tender daddy. Don't even use the term father, perhaps, and say this is daddy, that God says that we can address him that way because we are his children. So do you see how much better that the promise is than the law? The law is not going to do anything but beat you into submission. I mean, if you try to be saved by it, the law is going to beat you every which way from Sunday. You become black and blue by the law. But the promise gently caresses and it says, I love you, come to me, get close to me, call me daddy. So why would anybody want to choose law over grace? I mean, I I would much rather choose the love and the mercy and the grace of God than I would to sign on to an agreement that says you have to perform. That depends on my performance. I'd much rather let God do it all than try to stick my puny efforts into it. Well, that brings us to the 21st verse. It says, Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. So, law and faith are not opposed to each other. God didn't make the two antagonists. We're the ones that put them into a fight that was never supposed to happen. Now, the Galatians had been plunged into a debate that threw them off course, and, and somebody had just messed up here, and they would put law and faith into the ring with each other. But we think again what Paul says. God is one. He's the one that gave us both the law and the promise. He started both of those, and so God can't climb into the ring against himself. So if there was a law given that could have made us righteous, then we'd better get ready to place our bets because a fight is on. So if someone says, baptism will save you, or confession will save you, or rosaries will save you, taking the Mass will save you, then folks, we've got to fight on our hands. Faith and law go to battle with each other, and the loser in that battle is you. Because it means there's two ways to be saved, and those ways are as different as night and day. And they are so opposite to one another, and inconsistent with one another, that they're bound to leave you hopelessly confused. And what God would have to do is just step off the throne because he's become the author of confusion. But there isn't any conflict. The only way there is a conflict is if there is a law given that could save. And Paul says, there isn't one. God forbid there is no conflict. Law does not hate faith. Law brings you to faith. Law says, I can't do anything to help you but I can show you the one who can. And so the law hands us off to the grace of Jesus Christ. Verse 22 says, But the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. So the law brings us to Christ so that we can receive the promise through faith. And that's a wonderful thing. That is just a tremendous blessing for us. The law is a blessing to us. But only if we get the purpose right. And as we get into that next section, uh, beginning in a couple of weeks, we'll get to see how God just so designed this law so, so specifically, so wonderfully, that it would lead us to the exact purpose that God intended for it to have. So if you look at the law right, you'll always come out with a good outcome, a positive one, not a negative one. But if you look at it wrong, God help you. Because he's the only one who can. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, this word that we've learned tonight. And uh, we thank you for Jesus Christ whose righteousness is given to us through faith. We never have to worry about performance because our performance is never going to be good enough. And so, Lord, uh, help us to, to see you in, in grace and faith the way that you've designed these things to work. And may we teach others, the rest of the world, that's hopelessly stuck in that other religion, the the one that's opposite of the truth of Jehovah God. May we give them the, the true knowledge of what the law is intended to do and show them they can never help themselves, but they need to come to the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the truths that we learn here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation